Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Okay, Mark Ellen, I've got a stat-waddy game for you. Go on, fire away. Uh, you are no doubt familiar with the 19th century, I don't know, what do we call him? A writer-sociologist, Henry Mayhew, who documented the lives of the London poor. And what, yes. would, what, would, what would subsequently be called the underclass, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was the first person to write down a great deal about the kind of subculture of, uh, of the, the seamy side of Victorian London. So what I'm going to give you, Mark Ellen, is a load of names of outfits. And you have to tell me whether these are actual criminal gangs as documented in Henry Mayhew's survey of London low life in the 19th century, or are they Irish American punk rock groups? Okay, <laughs> okay over to you, Margaret. Here we go. Here's the first. All right, one. I'm going to scribble them down. Go on. Okay, well, I'll just get, give them one at a time. You shant them out. You All right. The Dropkick Murphys. Oh, that's a group. No, I, I, I've heard of them. That, uh, definitely, but that's a good name. Yeah, yeah, Dropkick Murphys. Dropkick yep. Murphys are a punk rock band uh, from Quincy, Massachusetts, in the United States. It's, uh, very often from the from the Boston, from the Eastern Seaboard of the United States. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the Drag Sneaks. The Drag Sneaks. The Drag Sneaks. The Drag Sneaks. Are they an actual criminal gang, as documented in Henry Mayhew's survey of London lowlife in the nineteenth century, or? An Irish-American punk rock group. I think they're a criminal gang. There's they something are. about that that suggests furtive action uh, down alleyways and uh, carting unfortunate people around by they're, they're felons. People, yeah, absolutely. They're people who steal goods from passing carts. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Okay. Okay, the Greenland whale fishers. Greenland whalefishers. That must be a band because they wouldn't be called the Greenland whalefishers if they were operating in London. It has to be okay. a band, presumably from somewhere up the northeast uh, end of, uh, of the great United this is States. Actually, this is actually from Bergen in Norway. Okay. Oh, okay. The next, filthy thieving bastards. <laughs> <laughs> the filthy thieving bastards. 
That is patently a band. It's got to yes. be a band because no, 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 no gang would call themselves something quite as uh, as, as uh, obvious as that. That's great. It's really funny. They're an American punk rock group from yeah, yeah. San Francisco, California. Okay, the these bug are great. These are brilliant. The Bug Hunters. The Bug Hunters. A gang, I think, but I don't know why. Why would they call the Bug Do you know why? Because they go through the pockets of drunks in pubs. And nice. Steal, and steal whatever they got. This is good. They're Bug Hunters. Yeah, yeah. What about the uh, Sharky Doyles? The Sharky Doyles. Is that an actual criminal gang from Henry Mayhew or Irish American? Well, I think it is because of the the Irish connotation of the word Doyle and indeed possibly of the word Sharky. So I'm, I'm guessing that that's a gang, but I don't know. No, it's a, it's a, it's a group from the South Side of Chicago who play drinking music for the working class crowd. Oh, right, like okay. Say, about the noisy racket men, the noisy racket men. A gang. They steal, a gang. they steal china and glass from outside china shops. Oh, and, that's brilliant. And finally, the Sawney Hunters. The Sawney Hunters. The Sawney Hunters. Irish-American punk rock group or actual criminal gang. I'm thinking Irish-American punk rock group. but I'm No, really no, they're an actual gang from 19th century London. They steal bacon. Do you know what they do, Mark? Go they on. S- <laughs> they steal bacon from cheese shop windows. This is superb. Someone's got to. <laughs> a lucrative business. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. So did you see, I think you did, that extraordinary story there this morning about how a cache of Bob Dylan's love letters has been discovered. Um, uh, and it's being sold at a Boston-based auction house. And they're discovered, and they were all addressed to a girl called Barbara Ann Hewitt of New these Brighton and Minnesota. These are, these are teenage love letters. Teenage love letters, absolutely. Let's make that absolutely clear. They were written between, I think, 50, what was it, 55 and 57? He was about 14, 15, 16 years old, 15 to 17, I think, and uh, 42 letters that he wrote to this girl that he was besotted with. I mean, it really it sounds really, really sweet. And he talks about, apparently, about wanting her to go with him to see Buddy Holly playing in Duluth. And he talks about all the records he's been listening to. And he talks about all the cars and all the fashions of the 1950s and about fantasising about changing his name and how he's going to sell a million records and, uh, and all the music he loves. And uh, th- I think that they did, I think he was, um, and how he's preparing for a, for a Hibbing High School talent show. And, I mean, it just sounds really touching to me, you know, and uh, God, wouldn't you love to read them? Because the fascinating thing about this sort of stuff is that there's so little information about people before they're kind of, before they're famous, as it were, before they're well-known. And, before you become Bob Dylan, at which point everything you write, you, in your, the back of your mind, there is the possibility that that might be reproduced or quoted at some stage because you're Bob Dylan. But before that, you know, you're going to be completely unselfconscious about what you say to somebody. And uh, I just thought it was a really touching story. The amount of money, Dave, quarter of a million dollars. Because you don't get the copyright, do you? Quite right. No, no, you, you and quite rightly. Yes. No, you can't because I mean I thought at first that that, that you know that would sell for a lot, which I mean I think uh, Leonard Cohen had some uh, love letters that sold 
not long ago, and I think they sold for something like in 2019, sold for something like um, the ones to Marion actually sold for six hundred and ninety thousand dollars, I think. So, you know, you can imagine that they would be really valuable. And I thought at first that a publishing company would buy them. And then, you know, then you could possibly, you know, reproduce them. But you can't. You can't legally. He owns the copyright. Yeah. But it's still a touching story, isn't it? Wouldn't you love to read those? I mean, it's amazing. So she must have kept them all that time. And, you know, she would have told... She would have told the family. I'm sure that she, she, Dylan had been her boyfriend when she was a teenager, and you know, they she died two years ago. And I think the daughter probably just thought, well, I tell you what, you know, let's um, let's just uh, let's, let's just put them out there and see what see if anybody's interested. Because presumably she couldn't just give them to a museum, could she? Really? Um, well, know, if you, you gave the museum, gonna... they'd have to exhibit them, and then people would have to read yeah. them, which again is. Then they would quote them. Wouldn't they? So, I mean, so let me ask. Let me ask you a question, Mark. Ellen. Yeah. You say you'd love to read them. How little would you like anybody to read, to read a love letter that you wrote? By me. And I guarantee that you did write them because we all did. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. When you were 13, 14. Oh, indeed, I did. Okay. I did. I, did. I was going to ask you exactly the same thing. Actually. Okay. How uh, embarrassed you'd be because, in my case, because there would be gauche attempts at dreadful poetry and very very soppy uh, sentimental actual, things <laughs> i mean you're probably the same I mean, actual, i'm sure actual i used to write letters with actual poems in them because you know don't forget i mean and this went on probably till i was at college you know kind of 18 19 because if you had a girlfriend and you you went home for the summer vacation or whatever you know, there was no regular texting or anything like no, there wasn't. that, and so actually, absence was was a, a really attractive thing, wasn't it? You know, it I mean? was. You kind of enjoyed the. It was the sentimental pull of writing a love letter and then getting one. Was it something that I suppose has just disappeared from life nowadays, hasn't it? Well, it has, it but must... and also when those letters arrived, because of the amount of time that you'd had to think about them and to say whatever it is you wanted to say and the time that it elapsed between you sending it and getting a response, when that response came, it was the impact was enormous, don't you think? You remember? Yeah, it was just incredible. I mean, you'd yeah. sit there and you wouldn't open it for an hour or two. You'd just sit and look at it and think, oh, my God, you know, this is, this is a major drama. And it's uh, yeah, it's just it's just gone now. You know, it's amazing. You say you wrote forty some letters, forty two letters. That's quite a lot. Isn't I know. It? You know, it's fantastic. And uh, but she obviously kept all of them, and she must have written back to him. I wonder he if he kept. Yes, that's did. a good point. He possibly didn't actually. It's probably probably possibly one of the things he put behind him when he. You know, because he kind of he burned his his kind of early life, didn't he? When he changed his name. Yeah, to and Bob also there's, there is a moment, presumably, when you have to say to your wife or whoever, when you're loading stuff into the roof of the new house, "Do you mind if I keep these forty-two letters from the girl that I wrote to when I was 15? Is that okay with you? I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean a thing. You know? But I mean, if you, this, we, if you we, we, we were discussing this only the other day, weren't we? The, we were kind, kind of how you can never ever mention a former girlfriend even from like in the days of black and white to your to your wife can you never assume that there is a statute of limitations over things like it can that. go down quite badly they, they can <laughs> 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 to really go down terribly terribly badly 
So yeah, so this this woman is uh, you know, is no longer with us, but uh, her offspring. Are, but her uh, offspring are there. The they, yeah, absolutely. So I've been reading this Dylan book, and uh, this is the philosophy of, of modern song. It, I think it's. I mean, I think there are bits of it I would criticize enormously, and there are bits that are just hilarious, where he just paints in the backstory that he imagines about characters and songs, um, which I won't read right now because they're quite wordy. But I was going to mention this thing about Elvis Costello. It's fantastic because very rarely does he talk about the the, the book's really about the effect of music. It's not the cause, you know. It's not about why somebody wrote that song or the biographical information about the songwriter or the singer or the recording process or the mechanics of how it was all bolted together, which you would really like. It's about the effect. It's about what it's like to listen to these songs and how they, you know, fire his imagination. But the stuff about Elvis is one of the rare occasions where he actually talks in some detail about, um, you know, about what Costello was like as a songwriter. And he said, I just read you a little bit. He says, Elvis Costello and the Attractions were a better band than any of their contemporaries. Light years better. Elvis himself was a unique figure. Horn-rimmed glasses, quirky, pigeon-toed and intense. The only singer-guitarist singer in the band. You couldn't say he didn't remind you of Buddy Holly, the Buddy Holly stereotype, at least on the surface. Elvis had Harold Lloyd in his DNA as well. Uh, at the point of Pump It Up, he obviously been listening to Springsteen too much, but he'd also had a heavy dose of subterranean homesick blues. Good point, actually, isn't it? Pump exactly. It Up, incredibly like it, isn't it? Pump It Up is a quasi-stop time tune with powerful rhetoric. Uh, and, and with all this, Elvis exuded nothing but high-level belligerence. And he says here uh, over the page, he says, the trouble is he exhausted people. Too much in his songs for anybody to actually land on. Too many thoughts, way too wordy, too many ideas that just bang up against themselves. Here, however, it's all compacted into one long song. Elvis is hard-edged with that belligerence that somehow he is able to streamline into his work. The songs are at top speed, and this is among his very best. It's really interesting. He talks about the Clash, too. He says the Clash. He's talking about London Calling. He says they were a desperate group. They have to get it all in. And a lot of their songs are overblown and overwritten, but well-intentioned, you know. And you just wish there was more of that because, you know, that's the really gold dust stuff. Someone with his skill, his understanding of that balance between between lyrics and with, with words and music that Costello didn't get right at first. It was just, wasn't it? It was just relentless. I'm a lyricist. Well, maybe and it's, it all kind of balanced out. Maybe it's just the thing you can only say once, really. There's not a lot to add to it because it's such a, yeah. profound, it's a profound point, really. And it's funny you say that because I was just listening to some Bob Dylan the other day and I, I can't exactly remember what it was, but it wasn't, wasn't something I was enormously familiar with. It was one of those kind of bootleg compilations that's come out over the last 10 years or so forth, you know, yeah, from, yeah. from the 70s, I think, or whatever. And so and so it's him singing a, a number of songs that I'd never heard before, and they may have been partly by him and they may have been partly by other people. And I was reminded once again, just for a fantastic performery, he can be, uh, and his ability to just put you there in a song, yeah, and 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 have you picture what it is that he's singing about is is very much connected. Which with give me an example of a song you listen to? I can't yeah. even think what it was, Mike. It's gone out of my yeah, head yeah, what yeah, it was. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Really. No, they're all the same. So many of them are the same. 
And and that very often it's a case of he's not putting too much in there at all. He's also going quite slowly very often, you know what I mean? He's painting a picture. He's going at the speed of the listener, whereas Elvis Costello goes at the speed of Elvis Costello. Yeah, he does. That's you know? right. So and there's the speed of the person who's familiar with the song because they wrote it. You know, they've yeah. done all they've done all their homework with the song. It's easy for them. Whereas Dylan's kind of sings at his best for the person who hasn't heard it before. Yeah. You know, he's suddenly just been presented with this for the first time. And he also, he can't be repeated too often. You know, the people who accuse him of being a terrible singer are so, so wrong. <laughs> oh, my Lord. It's the most unique sound. And it's so expressive. And also, I don't know anybody who... Who, what would the word be? Enunciates better. You never miss a syllable because he realizes the value of what it is he's trying to say, and every syllable counts. And it's so clear. And uh, I know I couldn't agree more. He's phenomenal. And the other thing, the other thing that struck me is, is that his audio book, there's an audio version of this. And um, I think this is the most elaborate example of this I've seen so far, which is it's slowly becoming a thing, I think. It's a kind of stellar cast audio book. The book is read by the gravelly old goat himself, plus Jeff Bridges, Steve Buscemi, John Goodman, Oscar Isaac, Helen Mirren, Rita Marino, Sissy Spacek, Alfred Woodard, who I don't know who that is, actually, uh, Jeffrey Wright, and Rene Zellweger. So that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Can I, I just mean, point out, and I speak as somebody who's recorded a number of audio books myself, the key issue here is this. Bob Dylan probably didn't write the book entirely on his own. He may have dictated some of it. He may have had a team working with it. And he certainly wasn't going to sit in a bloody studio for the time it takes to record an audio book. No, no, it's incredible. I've only done it once. It took, took three, four days, I think. Three, four you know, days. And, and you can only do four hours a day and you're knackered. Absolutely. Absolutely exhausted. knackered. And if you make a mistake, you feel bad for the poor person who's got to come there and edit that together and you just kind of, you're letting them down, you know. So clearly Bob was never going to do that. He said, I'll do a bit that you can put at the front of it and uh, and then you get a load of... Uh, but it's also know, a brilliant idea. Famous mate. Famous... I don't know if it is actually it might be it might oh, be right it, it's interesting i was i was involved in this was it, how many years ago is this now you know you the ian mcdonald book yeah the, the, yeah the guy i know well peter curran actually who yeah yeah on word and you're in the past and uh and his his mate colleague patch McQuaid, they had this idea of, of starting a kind of audio books imprint yeah and uh they they got the rights to do an audio version of Ian McDonald's Revolution in the Head. And they approached a load of people to read it, pick a bit and read it. And I did yeah. it. And Danny Baker did a bit. I can't remember who, who else did it. And I think it's fair to say it didn't work at all. Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It just well, you can't market it, you know, and also. You know, the, the, the nature of, of an audio book is you have to kind of like the voice. You don't want it changing all the time. You want it being well, consistent. Yeah, and that's a really good point. It's You're... interesting. I was I was, listening, I was reading, there's a column, Janice Turner's column in the Times this week, this week, I think it was this week, Yeah, uh, saying that she's been listening to the Bono, Bono's, he reads his own book, his autobiography that would be good and she says it's really good because his, be voice, really good. his voice just suits it obviously yeah, obviously it does real. no absolutely um, but also so, what you want is to hear the person who wrote it you know talking about these revelations 
themselves. I mean, you're absolutely right. Maybe hearing Rene Zellweger talking about uh, talking about um, Hank Williams is not quite the, just, same. the words work, of Bob Dylan. Just doesn't work at all because it's fir- it's a first person book. Yeah, Therefore, the eye has to be the person who was. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Who was? And the I think eye. you're. I think you're probably right about the other people involved because. You know, it's a bit like Theme Time Radio uh, Hour, the radio show that he did, which um, you and I absolutely loved. I'm sure a lot of people listening would have heard it too. And, uh, you know, it's, it was very obvious then, that, 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 and he used to credit them, that he had a team of researchers digging up information about these uh, these records that he was talking about. And um, and he also often sounded like he was reading off a piece of paper, didn't he? I mean, it just sure didn't. he was. But, I mean, it struck me that, that he's Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan is not going to do any research. He's just not. No. He's not going to do any research because because he never has had to in his life, and he's not going to start now. So all he's doing is telling you his idea of research is what he personally feels or remembers about that particular artist. You're not going to Google them and find it, out when you're it, here. It's, that it's a it's a wider point actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big big stars. Here, I put it put it out there. Big yeah. stars don't do any homework at all. No, they, they don't do any prep. They think it's kind of below them. Yeah. them. You know, it's interesting. And I hope I'm not telling tales out of school. I was, I was in, I was talking to our old friend and colleague, Kate Mossman, the other day. Yeah. And Kate Mossman had recently been dragged in to do a thing, I think in a new statesman, with, uh, with Bjork and, and Greta Thunberg, you know. Oh, right. And, yeah. and, and uh, the magazine say, oh, just go in there and just just move it along. Just chair it a bit. They'll all they'll have loads of questions to ask each other. And Kate said it became immediately apparent neither of them was going to ask the other one a question. No, no, absolutely. Because as, whenever you get anything where you get two kind of celebs in a space, they both have to have to establish which one's the senior celeb. Yeah. Which one's they're just there. And to one help. of the ways you can do that is by making it absolutely clear that you don't need to do any research or anything like that because you know you're you're just so uh, massively you, impressive just by being you. But you're clearly the subject of the thing rather than you know absolutely bad person investigating the subject. You're the subject. You know. And this, that, this reminds me of another example of this, which was years ago when we were at Word. I remember you were asked to go on a panel. This is Oxford University. I can't remember now. Oxford oh, University, the Oxford Painting Union. Society. Oxford, Oxford Union. Union. You went on and you were on the same panel as Nick Rhodes. And Nick Rhodes of Duran Duran had turned up and done absolutely no preparation at all. Am I right? You just thought, it, I'm going to busk it. I'm it, just going to be Nick Rhodes. It was going to be fabulous. There's hundreds of people there. The Oxford yeah, Union. Yeah. Absolutely packed. And... Uh, and I think I'm pretty clear he'd done no prep whatsoever. Nothing at all. Because <laughs> I'm a rock star. I'm kind of fabulous. My fabulousness will get me halfway. It's, I'm hey, wearing a know. pink suit. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you talk about what you've been reading this week, which is the Bob Dylan book. Shall I tell you what I've been reading this week? Yeah, go on. I've been reading a fantastic book called No More Champagne, Winston Churchill and His Money. Oh, right. Okay. It's a book just about Winston Churchill and his money. Yeah. And I I think there ought to be a similar book about every famous person. You know, to be it, it should be I don't know, Paul McCartney and his money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's people's relationship with money. And uh the guy who wrote it is a is a kind of financial journalist, so he knows what he's talking about. And 
Churchill, you know, kept every piece of paper, every letter from a bank manager, every demand from a publisher, every final demand from a wine merchant or a cigar seller, absolutely everything. So it's all there to piece it together. And it's just the most extraordinary tale because he was born as a kind of 19th century aristocrat without any of the resources of a 19th century aristocrat. There's really not an awful lot of money, really. Father died young. His mother was a bit of a waster. And he very early on... But with expectations of a well-heeled life. He developed... Yeah, absolutely. He felt he ought to live to a certain scale. And and he never did anything in his life to rein that in (laughs) whatsoever. Yeah. And so he just had to find ways of financing this lifestyle. And, you know, it was in politics, and so you'd be in the cabinet, then you wouldn't be in the cabinet or whatever, you know, you might be out for 10 years. And so most of what he made his living with was journalism. And honestly, it's fascinating for anybody who's made their living writing. <laughs> God, God, the amount he had to do. But to give you an idea of it, in this is in the before the First World War, his um his annual income was fifteen thousand pounds, right? Which in the time at the time made him one of the ten thousand wealthiest people in the UK. Yeah, his, yeah. His outgoings thirty thousand. Jesus Christ! <laughs> a lot of that on booze. Certain amount of it on booze, which is everything. Just yeah, yeah. absolutely everything. You know, he just did everything on a scale. And uh, cigars, for instance, he smoked twelve a day. 12 cigars a day. And at one stage, he didn't play his cigar bill for five years. My God. Can you imagine? No. How much money is this? That's absolutely unbelievable. But then what's the event that makes him really wealthy? The Second World War. Because he comes out of the Second World War. He's famous, fated all over the world. Roosevelt's dead. Stalin's in bad odor. He's he's the man, you know what I mean? He's a man with a golden pen. And so he starts cranking out the books and the Second World War books and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And eventually there's a team of people working on this stuff. This is why I say about Bob Dylan is probably doing a little bit of of similar, you know what I mean? He's not entirely writing these books himself. He has teams to help him. Oh, absolutely. Because he has to get a certain amount turn around and deliver to the American publisher in time for spring or whatever, so that he'll get the $50,000 that he needs to pay for the farm that he's just bought next door to him, you know, yeah. down down in Kent. And, and it, if ever there was a brilliant example of how we're mistaken if we think that the wealthy don't worry about money, that's that book is a shining example of this because he's utterly obsessed with money all his life even when he's got none and then when he's got loads he's still utterly obsessed but isn't that the case with i mean as discussed before uh you know on these on the podcast you know example like the stones you know that that part of the reason that it all is is because they have a lifestyle with a certain number of houses and they cannot possibly countenance the idea that that number of houses or that lifestyle is anyway going to be reduced because if it's being reduced it means that they are somehow even if it's only in their own heads they're on the slide and that's not something that they're they're prepared to to accept and so you know you've got a lifestyle and also you you constantly 
me imagine that if you had a little bit more money, things would be even better. And uh, so you're in that kind of cycle. Not that this has ever happened to either of us, but you're in that kind of cycle, aren't you? <laughs> anyway, it's funny. I was only reading a thing the other day. You know, Elton John, you know, had his farewell tour. Yeah. Uh, you know, which was sidelined by COVID, wasn't it, first of all? And yeah, it was. Delayed and then resumed and then off again and, and whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are stories in the paper saying that they were really depending on this tour to bring in something like $50 million. Yeah. And that he had it earmarked for his uh, for his retirement. You tend not to think of, of Elton John going, oh, I really... <laughs> I'm a bit worried, you know. Yeah. We're going to get the cold weather payment. Line the pockets because the old <laughs> heating bill's going up. Yeah. <laughs> or even the price of milk. The scale of the, the scale of the way they live. You know, if you're Elton yeah, John, yeah, you got yeah. four. You got four homes in different continents, haven't you? Yeah. For a start, you know, you got homes where you've fresh bought- flowers in every room. All those extraordinary stories about him. I know. Yeah. And then, and now he's got family, and you know, all that. All that only adds to it. You know, you, yeah, you yeah. wait. You wait till they start growing up, and you know, and uh, and adding to the demands. So, if you want to understand why your favorite elderly rock star hero keeps on touring my advice to you is go and read no more champagne winston churchill and his money the word podcast one of the few things you really need in life somebody asked me an interesting question on twitter the other day they said what's the record you've played most of all your records interesting point really yeah it's a good point and um so I thought, well, it's obviously got to be something that I've had for a long time, because you know, hence <laughs> you know, and, and if you bought it a long time, it's probably something you bought quite early on, because quite early on you had very few records. Consequently, the few you did had, you played an awful lot, you know. So your early records, you have played more than your more recent records. You must be. But also, this is going to be a record that just has a certain mood that never lets you down. There's something dependable about it, isn't it? It's not... uh, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, you're not... It's not the kind of thing... You know, it's not... Well, I I don't want to anticipate anything. It's not, I don't know, television's marquee moon. Which no, we all, no, not at all. We Absolutely all admire not. it. We all admire yeah, it. but there are only rare occasions when you really want to hear that. It's really not going to just give it. you a guaranteed lift every time you smack it on. Yeah, so here's what I've chosen. Lifts. I best I can guess it. Yeah, I thought it would be. I'll be the first Rolling Stones I album. thought it would be. That's a great there record. You are. It's a great record. It's. I'd still hold it's the greatest debut record ever made. Uh, people say, well, listen, it's not Rolling Stone song. That's what's good about it. They didn't write any of it, really, apart from little by little. Um, you know, it's made time. Tell me King. you're coming back to me. Is that on there? Yeah. They okay. wrote something. That anyway. was the yeah. first. Yeah, that was the first. Uh, but it, it's, you know. It's Chuck it, Berry, isn't it? It's, it's Jimmy it's Reed. 66, it's Jimmy Reed. It's Slim Harper. Oh, Carol. Uh, King B. It's uh, Muddy Waters. I just want to make yeah. to you. I, all recorded, all recorded in kind of an afternoon in Denmark Street, an impact sound in Denmark Street, with the tape machine that was just connected to the wall and was Fantastic. barely barely any good for years for Denmark. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a sound that they never improved on to yeah. my to my ears at all, and so it's now you know it's about sixty years old or whatever. 
whatever, and I, I put it on, and it still thrills me as much as it did back in 19. So it's that wonderful sound where they're still really tight and raw and that lovely Mick Jagger harmonica and everything about it. It's just a, it's a club sound, isn't it? It's, their it's set. amazing. It's like the Beatles' so, first album. It's their set, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So what's yours? Mine is, and I don't even know when this record came out, actually, um, but I guess it must have been in the 19... 19- 70s but i've had it forever and so is my wife one of the first things i noticed when we when we first started going out as we both had it. it's called intensify oh scar you know this this is an island compilation it's called intensify came out in the 80s it's, was it the 80s maybe yeah. it was the 80s yeah possibly a reissue yeah but yeah. it's uh el pussycat by roland alfonso no, no, solomon grundy um it's got uh it's got it's got the james it's got james bond by roland alfonso it's got uh penny reel by eric morris the higher the monkey climbs oh penny reel it's fantastic fantastic. and it's got that rackety you know rattling of dustbin lid echoey thin scar sound with really old saxes it's really interesting on the back it says that actually pretty much the same musicians are backing all these musicians so it's the same band so you got people like Rico Rodriguez on on trombone. Who Rico, of course, who was in you know Special. specials records, yeah. you know, and Alfonso on tenor sax and Ernest Wranglin, who was mm. we when we did that interview with uh, with um, with Chris Blackwell. He's talking about I think the first pretty much the first record, the second record he ever put out. I think on Ireland was by Ernest Wranglin. It's just fantastic. The Maytals are on there, and there's something about ska music. Is my feeling? Uh, there is ska music. Nobody. There's not a person on God's earth who doesn't like ska music. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Not that anyone ever does it, but if you were to put on a scar track at a wedding reception, I can't, if you'd stuck on, you know, a penny reel at a wedding reception, I can't see how all generations wouldn't shuffle onto the dance floor. It's fantastic. It's it's permanently enthusiastic and upbeat, and it's wonderful. It's never let me down. Well, I'm at the top of the house, but when my granddaughters come up 
um, to visit me at the top of the house. I uh, and they they want a record put on. It's always a Scar record. Is it? You put any Scar record on, they just leap up and down. They've oh. no, they no idea whether it's fifty years old or made last week or whatever. It's just got that. Well, it won't be long before they're, they're, they're turning up and saying, can, can we hear, Grandfather, can we hear um, Intensified, uh, 1962 <laughs> to 66, please? Yeah. And hear the great, the great trombone work of Ricky Rodriguez. Yeah. As long as uh, they don't come and ask for suede, I'll, you know, I'll be all right with them. So um, the, the, while we're talking about the Rolling Stones... Um, Bill Wyman. Bill Wyman. What were pretty you much saying? 30 years ago, he retired from the Central. I think it might have been very early December, but it's pretty much 30 years ago now, 1992. Bill Wyman knocked it on the head. And to God bless him, I wonder if he's ever regretted it. He's never gone back. He's had a few little side bands, hasn't he? He's done a few odds and ends. But 1992, he left the Stones. So was that the was that when they announced he was leaving, or it it, it was, wasn't it? Because yeah, I because think, didn't he leave, and they just sort of they would accept that, it. But this is he told me this story himself. I got um, what did he say? That uh, that after the uh, well, whatever it was, they you know they dicked around in the eighties with Mick and Keith not really speaking to each other, and both. Well, the Stones didn't really exist so, from about eighty two to eighty seven, did they? Something like that, and then they they went back uh, on the road, and um, it's a big big tour. And at the end of that tour, Bill said to them, uh, "That's my last one. You know, I can't yeah. be I can't be going through a five year period where you're making up your mind whether you're going to be on tour or not because I have to, I got I've got my life to plan. Yeah, I've got yeah, Sticky yeah. Fingers restaurants to run or whatever yeah. he was whatever he was doing." And so he said that, and then sort of two years later, they rang him up and said, "Right, okay, we're on, we're off, we're rehearsing. Uh, you know, it starts a few weeks' time in Canada." He said, "Well, no, I told you I was leaving." And they they pretty much said, "Well, it must have been Mick who said it." He thought you were joking. He thought you were joking. How can you believe? I know. <laughs> you see, and I think it's brilliant the idea that you can't. There is no mechanism to resign from the Rolling Stones. You can't call HR and pop in and say, I'm handing him my notice. Here. Yeah, I've been bullied. I, I hereby resign from yeah. the Rolling Stones. I wish I wish you and the rest of the chaps all the best in the future, and I will continue to support you from the back benches. Kind of yeah. thing. But, uh, you know, it's been a wild ride, but that's my lot. You can't do that. You just have to tell them. And they don't take you seriously. No, no, no. They don't refuse your, uh, <laughs> refuse your offer. And so now it's 30 years since it was publicly known that he left. And so, you know, the chap who has been playing the bass ever since Bill left, whose name I can still can't recall. Daryl? Daryl Jones, isn't it? Daryl Jones, yeah. Has been in the group longer than Bill Wyman was in the group. I know, it's incredible. But it's and we not, don't know who he is. We never, he never appears in any of the pictures. No, absolutely. <laughs> so there you go. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. Well, welcome to another uh, birthday guest slot on the podcast. And we're joined by Peter Pettit. And Peter, you're in, uh, well, we thought it was a fake backdrop, but no, it annoyingly appears to be real. Is it San Diego? Is that right? So, yeah, we're, we're just on the outskirts of San Diego in a place called La Jolla. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. Now, now you, you gentlemen, here's the first question. Um, which famous song does La Jolla appear in? Oh my goodness! I don't because it, it's 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 spelt. Is it J O L L A? Yes. 
Is it a Steely Dan song? It sounds um, like it might be. Uh, it's not, not that I'm aware of. It's it's another pretty well-known song by another pretty well-known group. Go on. Uh, Go associated, on. With, associated with California. So it, it it's, the beach, it's the Beach, beach Boys. Boys. Oh. And it, it's Surf in USA. Oh, oh right. Oh, good. It's one oh. of the many one of the many places where surfing took place in that song. Took place uh, with the absence of any Beach Boys. Dennis used to surf, didn't he? I think Dennis surfed. Dennis did surf. You're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The others never did, did they? It's yeah, a, yeah. a fantasy of, of Brian Wilson's uh, imagination, wasn't it? Mm. So, have you had your holiday? Oh, your holiday, your birthday. So, birthday was yesterday, and the reason we're here is because although we're based just outside Los Angeles, uh, our daughter. Um, so I'm here with my lovely wife, um, but daughter has just started her first year at. Uh, university in San Diego um, and the campus is literally 10 minutes from the beach um, I w sometimes wonder what I would have done if I had a university campus 10 minutes from a beach uh, probably not very much work actually I would um, imagine so it is it is I don't know if either of you guys have been down to San Diego before I have beautiful down here um, they say it's it's well, it's possibly one of the nicest climates in the world, actually, because it it never gets too hot, um, and it's never humid here, but equally it never gets too cold. All so, right, enough of that. Enough of yeah. that. Yeah. Well, there you are. So, so, as I said, I'm wearing a padded jacket, so let's as, let's move on. <laughs> West London, West London, and North London. <laughs> but yeah, no, so have you got an item for the agenda? I've got a, I've got a couple of things. I've got Go a couple on. of things. So so I, I've done a stack, Waddy. Oh, go on. Um, so I have eight phrases, and seven of them appear in the film Pulp Fiction. Right. Okay. One is made up. Okay. So, okay. So, so here we go. Um, pretty please with sugar on top. Right. They, they look like a couple of dorks. What's Fonzie like? Mikasa es su casa. Martin and Lewis or Amos and Andy. That town was full of hash cakes, lemons and rodeo riders. I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing. And this was divine intervention. Do you know what divine intervention is? God. Well, well that's it's been so long since I've seen it. I, I'm going to say that it's uh, this. That town was full of uh, of hash cakes, lemons, and rodeo riders, just because it sounds so. Utterly extraordinary. And I can't imagine what part of the film that would have. But then, I mean, I may be wrong. Is that right? Uh, you are absolutely right. Wow. No. Wow. On. That's that. I don't know why it just didn't seem to sit with the others. You could just imagine it. But uh, <laughs> well, you're quite right. And so, so obviously, that's that's uh, a defect of my uh, imagination for, for for writing something that was so obviously not the case. But uh, no, well done. Yes, that, actually, that was the made-up one. Yep. Hurrah! Terrific. And well, what about, have you got? Any, have you got a query too? Um, I've got a couple of I've got a couple of things. So um, I just wanted to throw a, a log on the remixed revolver fire. Yeah. Uh, because obviously that's been discussed quite a lot in the recent podcast. And um, as you may recall from uh, uh, my first birthday podcast, I am a massive Beatles fan, and yeah. I actually get a huge amount of pleasure out of these remixes and, and box sets. Um, but Mark, I was interested. I mean, you you were not so much down on the remix revolver when you were talking recently, but you were saying this is not necessarily what you wanted to hear. It was essentially a recreation of of what had had already gone. Um, I mean, the way that I like to think of it actually is 
Um, what would George Martin have done if he had had the current technology available? And if people had been listening to the devices that they're, they're using at the moment, uh, back in the 60s when these things were recorded. Because it seems to me, and I may be, I may be wrong about this, I, I believe that Here Comes the Sun is the most streamed Beatles track yeah. on Spotify. It is, yeah, yeah. And I think people have, have speculated that the reason for that might be that it sounds the best on modern listening devices. It sounds the freshest, the clearest. And I suppose it was obviously, a, obviously one of the tracks that was recorded very late in their career. And I'm just wondering, you know, is it now a question of, of trying to remodel these, these tracks so that they, they sound freshest in, in the, the ears of, of the current listener? I don't know what your thoughts are. Well, I think it's certainly the case, because the, you'll never be able to stop it, that the music that is being recorded now that people will still want to listen to in the future will be constantly remixed, mucked around with, changed in all kinds of ways to take advantage of exactly what you're talking about, you know, that, that it'll be different in five years, it'll be different in 50 years or whatever. That will happen because it can happen because yep. the companies who own the copyright will be able to, they'll control it forevermore, you know what I mean? That That's what... Whether it's a good idea or not is neither here nor there, really. That will happen, you know, because I think the point, one of the points we were making when we were talking about this the other day is that we, we used to listen to these things on a Dan set, on a mono Dan set in 1966 yeah, sure. or whatever, yeah. and it sounded brilliant. And that's the way we like it. That's, that's, the, that's the real sound for us. But, but it's all right. It's also because you're 15 years old or whatever, you know, and your ears are not clogged up and you haven't listened to millions of things and, you know, you just listen in a different way. I, you know, I don't think you never make the Avley brothers sound any better than they sound on a fairground waltzer. Mm. It, it just you can never make Chuck Berry sound any better than he sounded on a mono jukebox in a, in a cafe in 1964. It can't be done, you know, because all you all you end up doing, they end up you end up making these things sound rather thin. You, know, you overexpose them sometimes by the scrutiny of the gear, yeah. which they never got exposed by. You're in, hearing all the component day. parts rather than the, the yeah, big organic yeah, slab yeah, of sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but yeah, it'll it'll continue. It'll continue into the future. So you know, I don't know if any of Giles Martin's children are interested in being producers or engineers, but it'll <laughs> yeah. probably be passed on. And yeah. you wouldn't be yeah. surprised if you if they if they have another go at it in thirty years' you know, time. I, I mean, sorry, I, I bring up an, a, a subject we Mark and I have just been talking about when we recorded earlier parts of the podcast. I've just been reading about Winston Churchill and his money, and Winston Churchill was the beginning of a Churchill industry, which you know his family and his heirs and academics yeah. and all kinds of people participate in to this day, and that's not even that long ago, you know. Yeah. And that's yeah. not even, you're not even dealing with recorded information there. You're dealing with words and spaces mainly. Um, so it'll certainly happen with the Beatles uh, yeah. and it'll happen with loads of other people as well. Yeah. Although I think Here Comes the Sun's success actually isn't necessarily to do with the way it sounds now. I think it's to do with people making, <laughs> making it's great, it's playlists it's for when they go on holiday. It's what yeah, appeals to 15-year-olds rather than... Uh, well, you know. well, it's all, what you know is that, I, I can't see any alternative to this, all recorded music will be untethered 
yeah. from the medium in which it first appeared, whether it was a 12-inch LP or a CD or whatever. It'll just well, be individual bits of music floating around, people using them in yeah. all kinds of ways. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting um, future. And you were mentioning about Motown as well. I think if they did start to play around with those Motown uh, songs, um, that could be quite interesting because I'm sure there are instruments and, and vocals that are hidden in there that we've never really heard before and suddenly will come to the fore with this new technology, this steam mixing yeah. technology. I can't help thinking that that stuff probably doesn't exist. Uh, you know, that would be interesting. And, uh, you know, because I think if it did exist, it would have emerged, some of it would have emerged so far, you know. But also but whole just... horn sections would have been on one channel, <clears throat> so it might be hard to separate. But anyway. But, I, but that that's the interesting thing, I suppose, isn't it, with this new demixing technology this this that was developed by Peter Jackson as a result of uh, Get Back. They're able to. Was it Charles Martin? Don't use the analogy. Yes, he did. He sort of said that they could. Yeah. The cake, and then he came back with the milk and and the flour and the and the eggs sort of separated out. I mean, yeah. it, it it does open up in endless possibilities. I, I'm I'm actually very supportive of it because I actually do enjoy listening to this stuff in the car now, uh, and hearing things that I never heard before. So, um, but I, I take the point that it's not like the original experience that we had when we first listened to it. What you'll have in the future is everything will be you will supply with. So basically, yes. you'll yeah, have all the right. parts. Yeah. You'll have all yeah. the technology. You just feel sit there and, and make tax man the way you want. Yeah, you can yeah. mix it yourself. The way you yeah. feel like it today, and it might not be the way you feel like it tomorrow. But which is, uh, which is very interesting. Yeah. So so that that was one, one log to throw on the fire. The other one is is and I suppose because we've been going to a few concerts here recently, um, because you can and and it's post COVID, and of course the great thing about. California is, is the weather's pretty good, so you've got lots of outdoor venues, and that's actually a great experience listening to things. But it, it occurred to me, listening to, to some concerts this year, uh, about the nature of the encore. Um, I, I'm old enough, and, and sadly you, you guys are old enough, to possibly remember when the encore was a more, uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to say organic, unexpected, unplanned. It was earned. It had to be earned. It had to be yeah. earned. But you didn't know what it was going to be. Yeah, now, now it seems to me it's a bit like you, you have on your podcast, isn't it? This bit separates the bit that came yeah, before yeah, from the bit yeah, that follows. Yeah. And and I, I just wondered, do, do you have any thoughts on when that changed? Well, that, I think, isn't that to do with isn't that to do with lights and technology, a lot of it? I mean, it's also the fact that people decide to, 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 to program concerts like a kind of first, second and third act play. But also I think it's to do with the fact that every song is so dependent on a team working lights and sound that they 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 can't spontaneously most groups you go and see a, if you go and see them two nights in a row they're playing exactly the same set because there's so many people involved so i think it's a lot of it to do with the, that kind of lack of spontaneity that they can't do that anymore they can't just do you remember john martin used to do back in the 70s john martin used to do i can't be bothered with this encore business i'm going to do it now that's okay. right and then people would just applaud and then say, thank you very much. He wouldn't move at all and just carry on yeah. Yeah. going to the next thing. But you see, I think people like encores because people like to feel that they affect the proceedings. Yeah. Uh, even though and they know where they stand in the in the running order too. It means we're nearly at the end. So we can, you know, well, it's kind, of a, it's kind of up to us whether they come back on. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> 
And very often you think, oh, you've delighted us long enough, you know. <laughs> and it's also uh, amazing how how often you, you go to things and the applause seems to be dying out and they still do come back. Of course. Because they they've got to, because they still haven't played, you know, two or three songs that they want to play. You know? No, they're hits. See? Well, yeah, yeah, nobody, yeah, yeah. nobody ever well, comes that, back on Encore and says, here's another tune off a new album. Ever. Yeah. That, that, that was what occurred to me, because what, I think when I was younger, I, I seem to remember that you did genuinely feel that you had to shout as loud as possible. Yeah. You had to stomp yeah. as loud as possible to get them to come back on. Now, now you know they're coming back on. Yeah, I mean, no, there's, there is no doubt about that. Absolutely always. I'm trying to think. I mean, Mark, did Bob Dylan do encores? Mm, I no, I don't think I don't he think does. I've got a feeling they just got up does. and stood there and he took some applause there. and maybe sat down and did another song. But I don't think they, don't think they went off stage. It doesn't go off stage and come back on because, again. Because it's, it's also, it's also very un-Dylan business, isn't it? Because if you come back, if you respond to a traditional encore and you come back on, you kind of have to go, oh, this is really unexpected. Yeah, you've got this to say lovely. something. You've got to say something. Yeah. Bob Dylan couldn't do possibly Yeah, he couldn't that. possibly sing. You're too kind, the yeah, album. Morrissey couldn't do that. No, no. It doesn't fit with the image at all. Uh, but I, I think I've seen I've seen certain concerts. I'm, tr I'm trying to think which they are recently where I've been no encore. And I'd be quite pleased, really. It's yeah. just, a, it's a, you know, we don't have to go through. Got our money's so, worth. So many of these damn things are just ritualized experiences nowadays, you know. With... Well, I think that's the point, isn't it? it it's ritualized, it's not spontaneous, it's oh. not, you know, uh, organic in the way it used to be. I did actually read up on this a bit. There's not that much writing that's been done on this subject. Um, but they did make the point that apparently Elvis Presley never did encores. No, really? no. Tom no, Parker yeah. told him not to. Yeah. Um, and that apparently was the genesis of the phrase Elvis has left the building. Which well, I, that, that, that would make sense. Oh, yeah, I, 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 don't sense. Th I don't think the Beatles did on course. Oh, that, actually, this article that I read also says that because they had to be very, they had to be very, they planned obviously when to get them off the stage to get them yeah, away get from them the stadium out. so yeah, they wouldn't yeah. be mobbed. Yeah. So I don't think the Beatles was... did because what they always used to see is McCartney always just say, this is going to have to be our last number. Yeah, yeah. They yeah. always said that and then they played yeah. I'm Down, whatever it yeah. was. And you're yep. right, they're in a car before uh, before the applause well, they go, well, yeah. So You're absolutely it, it, right. It, it's very interesting, and, and, and I think it's a bit of a shame in some ways, because you kind of, you want the unexpected in some ways, you want the spontaneous, and you just feel now you're not going to get it, it's just part of the set list. And and now, I suppose, with social media, and you pretty much know what the songs are going to be, because they've been do. published yeah. before, haven't they? Yeah, 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 they have. And it's a different relationship. You've paid fifty pounds for the pleasure. You know, it's mm. going to be fairly ritualized. There's not going to be a lot of a uh, lot of wiggle room in there. Well, look, interesting, interesting topic. Very interesting. I'm sure other people have, will have contributions to make uh, in, yeah. in weeks to come. Uh, thank you very much for joining us for your birthday, oh, and uh, happy birthday as of yesterday. And get, back in, get back indoors before you freeze to death. <laughs> and, 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 You're listening to The Word Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be. So welcome to our Patreon birthday boy guest for this uh, for this week uh, is, is Mike Sketch. Hello, Mike. Where do we find you? You uh, Hello, uh, guys. You find me in Stamford in Lincolnshire. Oh, of course. Of course, Stamford. Is the George Hotel still there in Stamford? 
It certainly is. And I would imagine you would have had some wild EMAP related. We did. God, that's well observed. When we were at Smash Hits, particularly, we used to have conferences that day. Do you remember? Well, I don't know if we were. There weren't really conferences. We were taken there. I think it was a reward for the magazine doing quite well. It was the oldest coaching inn in the UK or something. It was. They used to say that. Uh, Very splendid stone floors and so forth. 14th century or something That's like that. That's the one we used to have There you time. go. There you go. In, in fact, I, I got married in the George Hotel uh, to my wife five years ago. There you go. Oh, right. oh right. fantastic. Very good, good place. Good. So when was your birthday? So my birthday was on the 5th of November. Oh, right. So what? Uh, which was uh, last well, week. A lot of competition annually. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a lot of competition with firework displays, etc. cetera. Uh, but we celebrated. My wife and I were born about six days apart in the same year. So we oh, wow. celebrated the weekend before. And we went with the uh, with the older children and their other halves to see Abba Voyage, which was... Uh, oh, was it good? Oh, was it any good? Very, very good indeed, yes. That's Absolutely. funny. Everyone who's been says it's fantastic. So, so I'm that, so pleased. It looks like it might survive because it was a lot of money. It was a big investment. It has to, doesn't it? It has to. It, has it to really does. Yeah. No, I thought it was amazing. I mean, it's particularly the opening sequence was pretty jaw-dropping, really. Uh, so, yeah, no, if you haven't been, I'd recommend you go. I think um, I'm going to have to. Yeah. That must have been an expensive... I'm going to say, so you went with your, your children and their and their plus ones kind of thing, and that's an expensive evening. That is. It, it was an... Exp- when we went to the uh, three o'clock showing on a Saturday, so us oldies could get home in time for, uh, well... <laughs> time for it's time. I know. I know. <laughs> for bed. Time for bed. You don't have to explain anything. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. If, you, if you can go to any entertainment in the afternoon as opposed to going to it in the evening, it's a good thing, isn't it? It's it always is. a good thing, isn't absolutely. it? It just makes it so much easier to get home when you live north of London. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. And if, even if you live in London, it gives you an opportunity to go for a drink or something to eat afterwards. You know, you're not tearing home straight. straight no, so it, was, it wasn't, wasn't a cheap. Uh, afternoon out you're right now i think we paid we were on the dance floor and we paid about 80 just over 80 pounds each wow. and there were six of us <laughs> so that's a 500 500 quid really before you've eaten or drank well God, so, we were talking earlier on about about you know peter gabriel going on tour and i think the cheapest seats or the most expensive seats actually at the front I mean, you can see him for 140 quid but i think the seats in the front row are something like 700 quid at the o2 and you think that's a lot of money two people 1500 quid yeah. My Lord, well, yeah. there were people happy to pay it, I'm sure. They would, they would. And, uh, you've got to really uh, like him, haven't you? For that, well, yeah. and also, also, he hasn't toured for years, has he? No, it's a big deal, so it's a big deal, it's a big deal. Fair enough. So, um, have you got a log to a conversational log yeah. to chuck on the fire? Well, well, I have, and actually, you, you've done a beautiful intro, really, because I the, there's always talk about prices of gigs, uh, periodically on your wonderful podcast. and so I thought I'd do a bit of research and see who could you see, who are the bargains out there? Who could you go and see for £30 or less? And right I've now, it, right now. Right now, yeah, or, or early next year. And, okay. and I've turned it into a stack waddy. So oh, I thought okay. Oh, okay. I'd right. put for you uh, eight names. Yes. And you've got to tell me which one you'd have to pay more. More than 30 quid. More than 30 quid. So, so is this the cheapest? Is this the cheapest seat? Uh, yes, general admission. General uh, admission. Generally speaking. All right, okay. okay. Uh, and no meat. So there are some options for meet and greets on these, but I've just gone for the 
They're you know, straight. No, go on. Eight names. Right. We've got to spot the expensive one. Yeah. We've got to spot the expensive one. And and I know that people often say the term legend is overused, but there are some legends here. I think well, certainly very well known <coughs> right. people. 30 quid or less. So first one, Francis Rossi. Right. Uh, Who goes out as status quo, doesn't he? Status quo, acoustic, albeit, but the man himself. Right. Number two, Wilco Johnson, uh, guitarist from Dr. Feelgood. Yeah. Uh, third one, Andy Fairweather Low. Yeah. 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 With Andy Fairweather Low and the Low Riders. Yeah. Uh, Hugh Cornwell, formerly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, not not a very well known name, but probably should be, and has been on your word in the in your attic is Boo Hewardine. Oh yeah, 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 master, yeah. master songwriter. Yeah, yep. Sean Ryder needs no introduction. Yeah, right. John Cale, formerly the Velvet Underground. Right. Yep. And Chris Difford from Squeeze. So I've got. We've got to decide which one is more than thirty quid. Correct. I think I've I've got my. I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm go, pretty I, sure. Shall I go first? You go first. I'm going to guess, and I, you can see Francis Rossi. He's not going out of status quo. I thought he was going out of status quo. You're saying he's, he's going. Well. Yeah. Uh, that's a different thing. Oh, different I mean. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to guess John Cale. Yes, I was too. I think John Cale because Francis Rossi, man of the people, Wilco, ditto, Andy Fairweather, low, just. You know, he's a big name, but a big name from a long time ago. Hugh Cornwall, again, Hugh Cornwall, his own minor stranglers, smallish venues. I don't know. Boo Hoodine. There's, there's, there's a bigger, there's one bigger issue than that, Mark, at all this, which is that all the rest are UK based acts. John Cale is not. John Cale, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Presumably. It must be John Cale. So, so are we right? Or are we, we paying wrong? his airfares, yeah. Yeah, you guys are good, aren't you? Are we going to write? Spot on. Yeah. Spot on. I've got a bonus question, though, as well. Go on. Which one of your mates would you have to pay slightly more than 30 quid to see? Um, And he's on tour very soon. Well, my mate, our mate. Very good mate of yours, yes. You often have him at things talking about stuff, particularly the Beatles. And he's charging. Uh, Mark Lewison. No, Mark Lewison. No. Go on. I, I go on. Go on. Danny Baker. No. Danny Baker. Oh, Danny Baker. Soon for £31.50 a pop. There oh, well, there's a God, that's reasonable. That's a, that's incredible. That's, that's a really reasonable night out. Because it's more than a night out. Well, it's four hours, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. That's incredible. And you're probably falling your home. You know? <laughs> that really is a bit. I think Peter Kay is doing the same sort of thing. Peter Kay's playing these massive venues, but I think you can still get seats for 30 quid or whatever. That's oh, really? incredible. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you're trying to make the point that there is good entertainment to be had. Yeah, for, absolutely. For, for, and I'm sure you're right. I'm sure you're right. If you think about someone like Boo Hewardine, who's yeah, absolutely back catalogue from the Bible, and he's written songs for all sorts of people, and he supports Chris Difford when he goes out. So, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. So I think I could go to a pub in Leicester and watch them both in December, just before Christmas, for twenty quid, um, playing acoustic and chatting, and probably hanging around to sign books and what have you. Yeah, I'm sure it's a very good value night. Out. Very shall good I, deal. Shall I tell you something about Boo Hewardine? That happened to me the other day. I this is the first time I've done this with with a kind of a rock star. I butt dialed Boo Hewardine. 
<laughs> so Boo rang me up. He says, have you been trying to call me? I said, man, was I? He said, oh, I thought it was my big break. My <laughs> <laughs> phone had magically rung him, you know, so there you are. And- he, um, sorry, he, t- he tells a story when he plays live about this guy who used to ring him up and ask him to co-write songs with him all the time. And he always used to give him the brush off. And it turned out in the end, it was James Blunt. <laughs> oh, there you go. Oh my Lord. That's amazing. Well, yeah. if you, if you go and see Boo, who uh, get him to tell you about the house. He, he, when he's former house, the extra, he told oh, us. Oh God. Story. Yeah. Oh God. That's it was a chilling, chilling story. Yeah. Something like Yeah. Yeah. I think it was. No, we interviewed yeah. him and it just, it, it took up the majority of the conversation because we were so fascinated by it. Poor guy. No, I think he wondered why he got it at such a reasonable price, but he yeah, found out quite says, soon. There's so there we reason. are. There's well, a then, lesson. Mike, oh, Mike, thanks for that. Thanks for that. Very and brilliant. Then, happy birthday as of ages ago, but it's Thank almost you. time for the next one. May your uh, balloon remain aloft. May yes. your balloon remain aloft <laughs> till next year. Next right. year. Cheers. Right. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.